praise God. Uh, it is really, really a blessing to be able to come and be here with you. And um, my wife was planning to come with me as well and uh, we've been sick all week long. Uh, it's been, been a really, really uh, long week. Just, just sick as a dog, uh, or sick as dogs in the plural. So, um, but Suzanne does send her love, and, and the folks at Cornerstone also send their love. Um, and, uh, you know, we really do appreciate um, the connection that we have with uh, with Kingsway, and it goes back some years now, and, and uh, we're really appreciate appreciative of that, and especially. Uh, how that has grown over the last uh, last several years, and so we're looking forward to that more and more as uh, as time goes on. So praise the Lord. Uh, everyone at Cornerstone sends their love and greetings, and of course we were, you know, very touched by the situation that occurred with our brother Werner uh, in recent times, and we were so appreciative to get the prayer requests that came through within a very short time of uh, Werner being struck down there. And so then uh, we, we got the word out and people, people were praying earnestly and, and lifting him up in prayer. And so it was a real rejoicing in the church as we heard how quickly uh, you know, Werner recovered and how, how the Lord just strengthened him and, uh, and enabled him. Amen. So we, we appreciate that. Uh, he's been a great blessing to us over the years, just in fellowship, him and Ella. And so we want to continue that as long as the Lord wills. Amen. Yes. Praise the Lord. Why don't we pray this morning and we're going to have a little look, a, a little overview of Amos uh, this morning. This is where we've been looking uh, in the word at Cornerstone in recent times. And there is a profound question that comes to us from Amos that we want to consider this morning. So... Uh, let's, let's just open first of all though in prayer. Now Father we thank you and we praise you this morning. Thank you for the wonderful worship here and the time in which we've been able to uh, pray and, and seek your face here together this morning to lift you up in songs that are not only praise Lord but are deep statements of worship unto you because they ascribe value to you on the basis of your character and not simply on the basis of what we feel has been, uh, we've been blessed with. And so we praise you, Lord. You're worthy of our worship, Lord God, uh, simply because you deserve it all, Father, because you are above all. We thank you that we may be found in Christ, your Son, through the blood of the cross, Lord, and faith in his work for us. And we ask you, Father, that as we continue here this morning, uh, you would exhort us, encourage us, enrich us, equip us, Lord, for the work of the ministry. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. We want to look at Amos, so if you'd like to turn there, we'll refer to a, a few passages from Amos. Hebrews 1, verse 1, declares to us... God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, 
whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Now, we shouldn't, we shouldn't take that to mean that God gave us the Old Testament, then Jesus came along and, and, uh, and so he's now spoken to us only in the Son. John declares that Jesus was the Word of God made flesh, that he appeared and he was the Word of God made flesh. And you and I both know that much of what Jesus declared to, the, uh, to his followers and even to his opponents was simply quotations directly out of the Old Testament. But what he did was took those quotations out of the Old Testament and he put them into the context that people needed to understand them with. And so the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God was speaking to the world in this. And so uh, it's interesting that the name of Amos, just by way of a couple of comments, means a burden bearer, uh, which is often the case for people who are involved within ministry, that there comes with ministry the certain weight of a burden. And so in Amos's case, that weight came as he is a man from the southern kingdom. We'll talk about that in a moment. But God had... Uh, sent him to the northern kingdom with a message that was principally but not only for the children of the northern kingdom of Israel. At the time in which this occurred, Israel had divided into uh, two segments and uh, those two segments became known as, the, as Judah in the south or the southern kingdom and as Israel in the north or the northern kingdom. And so uh, let's, let's go on. Uh, you can see the notes here. This is courtesy of Mark Barry, a fantastic site called Visual Unit and he's got a, a lot of fantastic slides and so of course if the presentation was working you would see this slide and we can blow it up a little bit and uh, you can see, we'll just skip into it so that you can see it um, in a little more detail here. This is the picture of the what would become the reign of the, Syrian em the Assyrian Empire uh, at the height and you can see that it stretches from right over above Iraq right up into uh, Turkey and down here through the Sinai Peninsula into Egypt but not only Egypt, down into Sudan as well, uh, northern Africa. And so in particular you can see that it's highlighted here Jerusalem and Samaria. You won't be able to see it clearly from there but you have this little orange patch and little green patch so the, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom and the city of Jerusalem is located in the southern kingdom and of course this is the spiritual heart of Israel at the time uh, of this and then you can see the red line that will show the uh, captivity of Israel by the Assyrians and where the northern, particularly the tribes out of the north would be led right across uh, through Nineveh and right across to uh, north of Iraq. Uh, and so it's quite a, quite a powerful empire that, uh, that was functioning under the Assyrians at that time. And so Amos was a, was a citizen of the southern kingdom, the southern kingdom known as Judah and typically the more righteous kingdom, uh, typically... They honoured God with worship and were more righteous in their followings of the law of God by and large. Not perfectly uh, and many times uh, they erred as well 
in their, in their behaviour. So the southern kingdom was, at this time was ruled by King Uzziah and the northern kingdom was ruled by Jeroboam II uh, in Israel. And under these kings, both Judah and Israel experienced this prosperity that came into the land and uh, both nations were prospering materially and geographically as well uh, as, as Israel, the northern kingdom, had expanded out to take, uh, take hold of territory that belonged to them. And so you can see that Second Kings chapter 4 uh, has some description of that as well. But the problem is that Jeroboam, so in the northern kingdom, Jeroboam continued in the idolatry of his father. Now, Amos's ministry to them was right at this time and Jeroboam is a man who, who has uh, embraced this wickedness of idolatry and paganism and he has brought it in amongst the biblical worship that the Jews were to hold to. And so Amos is ministering at this time and at the same time as well there are the presence of other great prophets just before him and, and after him, uh, Hosea, Isaiah and Micah. These are not small names in scripture even though some of them are called the minor prophets. We shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that the minor prophets means unimportant. It's, it means, it's simply talking about the size of their, their books, that they are small in size but these books are huge in stature and so uh, this becomes an important point for us. So one of the things that we can learn by reading the prophets of the Old Testament and we can see also into the New Testament is that at every time in history God will raise people up to herald his word. We understand this partly as the theology of the remnant that at all times in Israel's history, even in the times of the worst wickedness and the, and the worst sin that, uh, that Israel, north and south, could be involved in, that God still held a remnant of people who were true worshippers. And uh, some of the uh, fantastic messages that, that exist in Nehemiah uh, would be a great example of that. Well, Amos 1, verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. To help us understand Amos just a little bit more, uh, we can get a little bit of the historical context. So Amos is a prophet and he describes himself in verse 1 as being a farmer from Tekoa. You know, I'm not a farmer. I, I actually would love to be a farmer. I'd, I'd enjoy that. I like being on the land. I've worked on many farms. I grew up in the country and I was born in a little place called Menangatang. Anyone heard of that? Yeah, there's one or two who've heard of that. Little place out in the Mallee. Um, so this is Amos, right? 
he's this country hick guy who God has put a message on his heart and he comes from a little place called Tekoa. It's just a backwater area um, and, you know, the city folk, they kind of think that the country folk are, you know, they're a little bit behind in their education, a little bit simple, these kinds of things, the common kind of way of thinking that complex city people have about these less complex, maybe even simple, country people. There's no doubt that Amos, heading to the big smoke and giving his message, they would have noticed his accent. You know, uh, whenever you see these movies about the southern parts of, of America and they have that really strong southern y'all kind of drawl going on in the movie and there's a stereotype that takes place about the simplicity of those people. It's that kind of thing that would have been the case in Amos's life. He's a sheep breeder and he's a tender of sycamore fruit. Uh, as you read through, you'll see that. And so this tender of sycamore fruit, it literally means someone who makes a cut in the fruit to aid the maturity. So he's not just someone who goes and picks the fruit off the tree, but he understands the tree. He's a man who works with skill in his vocation as a sheep breeder and as a tender of the sycamore fruit. He's working with skill and in the midst of this, his life as a, as a shepherd and an orchardist, in the midst of this, God calls him and gives him a message to take to Israel. So, if you read the entire chapter, first chapter, and on down through verse 5 of the second chapter, you will see that Amos does not begin with saying to them, Yea, thus saith the Lord to Israel. He begins by speaking about the surrounding tribes and nations. And he begins to bring condemnation to these people through, uh, through the message that he gives. So, he does this and, and he circles all the way around the surrounding nations, ending with the condemnation of Judah. You can see in chapter 2. Uh, for three transgressions of Moab and for four I will not turn away this punishment. Um, uh, sorry, verse 4. Uh, for three transgressions of Judah and for four I will not turn away this punishment because you, they have despised the law of God and have not kept his commandments. Their lies led them astray, lies which their fathers followed. But I will send a fire upon Judah and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not turn away its punishment. It is at that point that Amos begins to speak to Israel and begins to deal with the matters concerning that nation. Don't get caught into counting the three transgressions and four. It's simply a phrase uh, saying, it is for these reasons that I'm bringing punishment to Israel. Well, what is the problem for Judah and for Israel? The chief problem is that these are people of covenant with God. And it's this covenant that they have with God that brings this judgment upon them from God. And this covenant is centred in two great commandments. And you can see them here, Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, 
begins in verse 4, obviously, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your soul and with all your might. And then in Leviticus 19, verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against, against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. When Jesus is asked which of the command, commandments is the greatest commandment, he, uh, he answers with, with Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. That's his answer to them, that this is the greatest commandment. And they recognise that is rightly spoken. And then he says, but wait, there's something else as well. The second is that you shall love your neighbour as yourself. They get him into a, a, a religious discussion or a political discussion almost about who is my neighbour. And, uh, and so Jesus demonstrates to them through his lesson that our neighbour is those people who have need in the situation in which we can provide and help, bring assistance to their need. Well, it is the, this strong theme of Scripture all the way through both the Old Testament and the New Testament and this theme of Scripture is about the oppression of the poor and the needy and the condemnation that is coming upon Israel by the prophet Amos at that time is centred around these areas of loving God and loving your neighbour. These are the themes of the book that you're not loving God according to the law and you are not loving your neighbour according to the law. Israel was in violation of both of these commandments through constant forms of idolatry and constant oppression of the poor in that they favoured the rich. Imagine if you're sitting in, uh, you, you come to church here at Kingsway and, and you go to sit in the front row with Pastor Werner and, and Sister Ella. You go to sit there and along comes one of the ushers and they say to you, sorry, sorry, you can't sit in this chair. This is for the privileged. Right? So you go to move over here and they say, no, 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 sorry, you can't sit here as well because this, this seat starts for people who tithe $100 a week. You have to move to the back. This is what James was dealing with when he talked about the poor being put to be outcast in the meeting. Says, Take those people and put them in the place of preference. Because all that James is doing is following through this strong theme of Scripture that, that's presented to us all the way from the Old Testament right through to the New Testament that you and I as Christians are to demonstrate love to those who have needs most. And so the, the crux of the book of Amos is one of idolatry and injustice. And these two things are always occurring when we violate these two principal commandments, to love the Lord our God with all our heart and to love our neighbour as ourself. Whenever we violate those, the principles of those commandments, we will tend towards idolatry and injustice. Now, the question would be, as it says here, why? Why didn't they see 
what they were doing was wrong and just turn from it. I'll tell you what beautiful worship we've had this morning. You know, the key to this kind of worship is that it is Christ-centred. It's just, it's as simple as that. The songs are reflecting the worship and the glory of God because the songs are describing the gospel or they're describing the nature of God and the character of God. It's a very, very simple thing. It's nothing to do with the tempo and the rhythm and, and the chord structures or anything like that. It's all about what the content of that message is. And so it's a Christ-honouring thing and as you lift your voice up to God in song uh, and sing these songs out to him, your heart is brought to a place of rejoicing. Why? Not because you've been emotionally manipulated by some kind of fancy chord structure but because you have been brought to concentrate upon the Lord. Turn our minds from our own selves and devote them to the Lord. Well, what were they doing? Israel at this time, they had what would be seen by many within the church today. They were having revival. There was, this is the northern kingdom we're talking about. There was a fervency in their worship. You know what fervency means in scripture when we take the word uh, fervency, the effectual fervent prayers of a righteous man. The word literally means hot. And so when we talk about a fervency of worship, we're talking about something that's summoned up with some enthusiasm. It's not wrong to be enthusiastic. But this enthusiasm can be deceptive because it can lead us to a place where we can start to put our emphasis upon the actual experience rather than the content of what we're doing and the motivation behind what we're doing. Sorry, I've got to keep the fluids up, otherwise I'll start coughing. So the last thing I did before I came here was duck into the loo because I'm just drinking so much at the moment or otherwise I'm going to be coughing and then you'll all feel sympathy for me. So, so Israel had this fervent worship for God and they, this involved the feast, the feasts of Israel, uh, the Old Testament feasts. In the midst of this though, they had also brought this pagan idolatry into their worship and at the same time they were persecuting those who had the most needs among them. Imagine the church being like that today. So there are three essential reasons why God was able to send the prophet Amos down and Amos could stand on the street corner and say, Y'all listen now. I have a message from the Lord for you. You know, now, sorry to any Americans who may listen to the recording. Um, but these essential reasons why Amos is able to deliver this message to them is firstly because of Israel's privileged position. Chapter 3, verse 2, the Lord says through Amos, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. People often ask, why did God choose Israel? And some people say, well, it was just his, his sovereign election. Yes, it was, but it was God's sovereign election for a reason. And he says that it's because you were the smallest and the weakest 
I chose you. And so, what does that mean? Why is that? Well, because with the smallest and the weakest, God would then show the world that his hand was mightily upon this nation because of one thing, their obedience and true worship of him. And so as they obeyed God out of a heart of love, God would bless that nation. It was a particular kind of covenant that God had with them that you can imagine like an XY kind of formula. If you do X, then I will do Y. If you do this, then I will do that. So if you do good, if you obey my laws and my statutes and my principles and you seek to worship and love me with all your heart, then I will pour out all these blessings and you will be a witness to the world around. And that witness will be that I've taken this small, weak, insignificant people and I've made them to be a mighty blessing in the world. However, if you do not obey, then all of these cursings will come upon you. You see, it's quite possible that Israel, given this covenant relationship that they had, had come to a place in which they were now thinking, well, we're God's people. We're God's people. He's told us he's chosen us and he has made a covenant with us. And so out of this had possibly come a place in which they had an arrogant attitude toward the Lord, well that's demonstrated in in their behaviour and possibly they thought that they were beyond God's judgement because God had chosen them. Well if he's chosen us, how could he judge us? I've spoken to Christians who think that way. They, They misunderstand God's election and they think that somehow because they they feel that they are elect that therefore they are beyond God's judgement. 1 Peter 4 verse 17 For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God and if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So why does it start here? Why does does judgment start with the household of God? This is New Testament. And it's because you and I are are the... heirs of great privilege. You and I are the heirs of wisdom and knowledge that is beyond us. We've been given by God a book of instruction, not just any book. This is not just a manual. Uh, James, in prayer this morning, he, he was quoting from Hebrews 4 that the word of God is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. What's it able to do? Separate that which is carnal and fleshly from that which is spiritual. Why is that? Because as Paul describes the gospel, it's the power of God unto salvation. And so you and I are the privileged heirs of this blessing. Out of that privilege comes this calling to a higher standard. The world should not be able to open its newspapers and read about pedophilia in the church. The world should not be able to open newspapers and read about pastors who are making multi-million dollar salaries or read about ministers who have embezzled money away for their own personal future fund. 
the world shouldn't be able to do this. We're supposed to be living at a higher standard than the world. Not so that we can then point our finger at them and say, oh, look at those sinners out there. Look how righteous and wonderful we are, Pastor Werner. Like, like you know. And such were some of you, Paul says. They were also, the other reason, or another reason why God was bringing judgment to them and why he was justified in bringing judgment to them was because of the prophetic revelation that they had and this is linked into the relationship I mentioned before and Amos, uh, this XY relationship. If you do X, then I will do Y. So, uh, and Amos 3 verse 7 says, For the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. Now, um, I've heard this verse used. In fact, uh, it was taught by William Branham that God was speaking through him and uh, to his followers because God does nothing except he first reveals it to his prophets. And, you know, that, that's a total misuse of scripture. What Amos is actually saying, God's not going to do anything to you unless he reveals it through his prophets and that's actually what he's already done. He's already shown you where your actions are going to take you. Well, we're not too interested in the modern day self-proclaimed prophets, but Deuteronomy 28, verse 15, but it shall come to pass. Now, you should, when you read Amos and take some time to read the minor prophets, you should really take a strong look at Deuteronomy, and, uh, but especially this particular pivotal turning point and you can go on and read this, uh, the entire passage yourself. But it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. So when Amos is declaring, God does nothing except he first reveals it to his prophets, He's saying, I'm declaring to you what God has already declared to his prophets. But now what Amos is going to do is get a little bit more specific about the nature of the curse that is going to come upon them and where that is going to lead them. And so he's, he's simply saying that God's already revealed that this will be the consequence of your behaviour. Deuteronomy 28.16 says, Curse shall you be in the city, curse shall you be in the country. 17, Curse shall you be, uh, shall be the basket and your kneading bowl. Uh, curse shall be the fruit of your body and the produce of your land, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks. Curse shall you be when you come in and when you go out. Verse 20, The Lord will send upon you cursing, confusion and rebuke in all that, your hand, uh, all that you set your hand to do. 25 says the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. Is, there's a lot more detail in that that you should go into. So the principle of Deuteronomy 28 is this principle of the relationship that God has in the covenant that he has with Israel. We, we in the church are in a different covenant there's still a covenant on the basis of faith 
but there is a difference to the church's covenant. We have not replaced Israel, but God is using us at this time to provoke them to jealousy and, and uh, in that he's incorporated the church into the covenant blessing of faith. Now, here is the, in, in a sense, Amos is saying, God, God's not doing anything to you except that he's revealed it by the prophets. Remember Deuteronomy 28? This is a very typical prophetic way of teaching. Jesus on the cross, even, not only on the cross, but but on the cross in particular, one fantastic statement that Jesus makes and it's a statement that when people read that statement they, they often get drawn into a discussion about his forsakenness. But Jesus declares, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And people often get so focused on those words that they're looking at those words and they forget that he's quoting the opening line of Psalm 22. Jesus is a rabbinical teacher and as he says this, Ali, Ali, Lama, Sabachthani, he says in the, the translation is. As he says those words, some people thought he was calling out for Elijah and, and uh, all different kinds of things, they were mocking him. But you know what? The author of the Gospel, he didn't think that. He wrote down the words Jesus said. Why is that? Because he understood what Jesus was saying. That Jesus, as he's being crucified and is in the, in the time of dying for your sins and my sins, is pointing his followers and those with hearts to hear to Psalm 22. He, we would say today, hey guys, check Psalm 22. This event is unfolding now. But that's not the rabbinical way of teaching. The rabbinical way of teaching was that he would quote a line from the passage or make a statement that was understood by them that would point them to portions of the Torah. And so in this way, Amos, as he declares that God does nothing except that he first reveals it by the prophets, he's simply saying to them, God is not doing anything you don't deserve. He's already told you this. Well, finally, the third reason for them, for them being judged by God is because of their persistent oppression. Chapter 3, verse 9. Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt. This is a very interesting statement here. And say, assemble yourselves on the, mounts, on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. The northern kingdom, Samaria was at the centre of the, the northern kingdom and the, you know, Jesus in John chapter 4 talking to the Samaritan woman. That area 
they had set up two centres of worship in Bethel and Gilgal uh, within Samaria. And it's interesting that the Lord through Amos declares that, that ask Ashdod and Egypt to come and witness the great tumult and the oppression within this region. Well, if you think about this, these centres of Ashdod and Egypt were centres of false worship and pagan idolatry. From Egypt, we know the classic story as the the Israelites came out of Egypt and were delivered and one of their first acts of worship as Moses is up in the mountains and they're despairing at his delaying in returning to them is to melt down all the gold they can get their hands on and, and make a golden calf. And this is what is continuing within Israel. And so it's like God calls their enemies to come and witness the sin within that nation. Well, Israel was experiencing a revival in religion and today if we were to bring that over to the church, you know, and we were to say, see the fervency and the growth and various different, the, the zeal in worship, people would say, whoa, we're in revival, you know. The Spirit of God is moving. And you can check this about the feasts in chapter 4 um, and chapter 5. So let's have a look at these verses here. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Come to Bethel and transgress. To Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. Bethel and Gilgal, these are important places in Jewish history. Bethel, the place in which uh, Jacob took the stone and, and uh, laid his head on it as a pillow. Um, you know, I've been famous for saying that I could sleep on the back of a barbed wire fence uh, only as a, a phrase of saying that I could sleep anywhere. I often like to just lay down on the floor and uh, have a bit of a sleep on the floor um, and I can go into a very deep deep sleep in that, that kind of place. Um, but I wonder whether Jacob has this dream because he's sleeping on a rock. I don't know. Um, but in this dream he sees angels ascending and descending on a ladder that is between the earth and, and heaven and so he names the place Bethel or Beit El, the house of the Lord because he says, surely the Lord is, is in this place. Surely the Lord is in this place. He's saying this is God's territory. And by the time of Jeroboam the second and the first, they have taken this from being God's place and they have, knowing the significance of it to the Jewish history, now that the division has happened and the, you have the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, to, because Jerusalem is really that heart of the worship of Yahweh, now they set up in Gilgal 
another place of worship, but there they bring in an admixture of this false worship. Well, the same also when he talks of Gilgal, another important place where uh, Joshua led the Israelites across the Jordan River and there the priests uh, took the stones from within the river and as they crossed to the other side and God caused the river then to flow again and they set up the stones as a memorial so that they can come back and see how God with his mighty hand just like through the dead had brought them through the river Jordan into the land that they were going to possess. These were sacred places. You will notice, I love sarcasm actually, I love it a real lot. Uh, you will notice the sarcasm very, very strongly within this passage as God speaks to the Israelites because he says, come down to the house of God and sin. And while you're at it, go to that other prominent place within your history, Gilgal, and do some more sinning there. Fancy saying that to the church. Hey, let's go over to to. Israel and, and let's get down there into Bethlehem and, and let's sin. I'm, that's repugnant, isn't it, to think that. Let's go and find that place, what was it called? Uh, Golgotha and, and let's gather around there and let's have a good old drunken party. And, oh, we'll, I know what, we'll sing some worship songs but we'll also pray to Mary. And while we're at it, we'll, we'll add in a little bit of chrislam bit of this Christian Islam stuff and we'll add that in as well. You see, when Christians say that they can do these things, they're simply doing e- exactly a New Testament version of what the Israelites were doing there. It's an admixture of worship. Come to church and sin. You see, church isn't about you and I. It's about God. And church is where you and I come and we bring worship to God not on the basis of what we think or feel but on the basis of truth with a heart filled with the Spirit of God. This is truth and spirit. I love how he underlines it here. Come to Bethel and sin, come to Gilgal and multiply. love to do for so you love to do bring your offerings publish them because this is what you want to do does that remind you of anything in the New Testament Jesus at the treasury watching the people bringing their offerings they're all bringing in these huge offerings and he is totally uninterested until a lady comes along and she just drops in the smallest of coins available And then Jesus stops the whole thing. He says, whoa, stop, stop, stop. This is worship. You've all given from your abundance. But this woman's sacrificing it all. You you see, they, they didn't notice her offering. But Jesus did. And so this is what's happening here with the Israelites. They're bringing loud and raucous worship and praise and and offerings mixed in with all of this false worship. But it's all wrapped up in the enthusiasm 
in the fervour of it all that they're convincing themselves that they're in revival. In chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel and the horns of the altars shall be cut off and fall to the ground. They had formed these altars and upon the altar had the calf with the horns out the front and, and these were places of this false worship. Why would God say, I'm going to cut off the horns? Why wouldn't he just crush that thing down? But he made the specific mention of cutting off the horns because of what they had done with these altars. And they had uh, mingled it with the idolatry and with this, if uh, they had, as we understand about the, the teachings concerning fugitives and safe havens within Israel, that's a whole other thing, but they had set up the temple here and they had this altar in there with this false deity, this false idol within it and it had the horns out of it and if somebody was being chased by, uh, by somebody claiming you know, whatever crime against them, they could run into the, the temple and they could hold on to the horns of the altar and then this person would be given an amnesty uh, and, and then their case would be heard properly and they wouldn't be put to death until their, their case was heard properly. And so God says that he's going to bring this judgment and he's even going to cut off the horns and the horns are going to fall to the ground. He's saying to them, there's no safe place for you to go. You, you're, when, when my judgment comes, there will be no safe place for you to go anywhere. Forget about running into the temple and grabbing onto the horns because they're going to be on the ground. Wow. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? Well, probably one of the strongest passages just listed at the bottom there, chapter 5, 21 to 24. I hate... You know, God is love. And he starts this statement with, I hate, I despise your feasts. But they're his feasts. These are feasts that he's declared that they should do. But they were not doing it within the understanding of spirit and truth. And so, they were not his feasts anymore. And he says, I hate your pretend acts of worship. I despise them. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. You see, they had it, they had it down, didn't they? The practice of religious worship, holding their Bible the right way and the hand up, the head tilted, little pinky sticking out, you know. They had it, you know, they had all the show of worship. Everything, though, was external. Look how spiritual I am, you know. Oh, greetings, brother. You know, using all the, all the language. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, 
to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You see, is it too late for Israel? I don't believe even at this point it would be too late for them to repent and for God to relent from the judgment that he was going to bring. But they did not. And so he brought it upon them. Well, partiality naturally leads to injustice. We, we illustrated it before by saying, you know, the front row uh, for the, you know, back in the, the times of D.L. Moody is a recent example of, uh, historically of how a person would buy seats within the church by their levels of offering and giving that they had and so uh, Moody would, would buy up whole rows of seats for all the young people that he was bringing in off the streets that he was witnessing to. It was not an uncommon thing. Churches used this as a fixed form of raising income for the church. Might be an idea, Pastor Werner. So, no, 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 don't do it, don't do it. I'm, what this does is it leads to injustice in which the poor and the needy, those who are in most need of love from the church are the first ones not to receive it. Unrighteousness is a consequence of idolatry. And God states that he hates hates this. I hate. I despise your feasts. If God says to you, I hate, and he talks to you about something you're doing, you need to listen. You need to really listen. So, in summary, just at this point we're coming to the end. Why was God bringing judgment on Israel? Because of their privileged position, the prophetic revelation and their persistent oppression. So there's a powerful, powerful lesson in this for us. Israel has not replaced, uh, been replaced by the church. We are in this dis- dispensation with God. But if you take some time to read through the book of Amos, you can come to put this question in the back. Maybe you can write it in the margin of your Bible at the start of Amos, this question right here. Is my Christian life authentic? I can't answer that for you. You can't answer it for me. I could stand here saying these things and be completely unauthentic because it's not that that demonstrates authenticity. Is my Christian life authentic. And I believe that this is the strong challenge from Isaiah 5, 21 through to 24. I hate, I despise your feast days and I do not savour your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and, and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs For I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments, but let justice roll down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. You see, it is possible that everything we do, the actions, could all be wrong. 
Not because there's anything inherently wrong in singing and playing instruments. It's not what God is saying. He's pointing at their hearts. He's pointing at what they've added in to their supposed worship of Yahweh. Because they've added in other worship, worship to other idols and other deities. What this means is the Lord does look at what we do, but deeper than that, he looks at who we are and why we do it. And his assessment is that assessment of John chapter 4. Maybe you can turn there. This religious discussion that takes place between Jesus and the woman at the well. She says, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet in verse 19. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. This is directly this north-south issue going on in Israel. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Spirit is not simply an expression of enthusiasm. You know, you talk about a footballer is out there and has a great game and say, he showed great spirit. That's not what the Bible means about spirit. You could be entirely broken and weeping in your chair as a song is being sung and be in great spiritual worship. You could be entirely broken and weeping in your chair as the preaching is happening and that is worshipping God in spirit. Why? Because God is dealing with you on the nature of truth and maybe dealing with you on an issue in your heart. We can easily become entrapped by forms and liturgies, the the order of the service and the order of the service can become so prominent that we have to do it this way and, and you know, when you get into a second generation of doing it, then it's, it starts to get established in a specific way and so, you know, as soon as someone wants to make a change, everybody, you know, uh, curses them and I, I make some changes. I love the communion here this morning and uh, we used to have the communion at the end of our service and at one point we put it in the middle like you did this morning uh, and recently we, we've had it before the service, right at the start. And we, we have a table and we put the table out and we all come and we stand around the table and we, we do it right at the start. And I like to make those changes because it doesn't matter how we, what order we do things in. The issue is why we're doing it and the hearts that we come before God with in doing it, that we are honouring him and seeking to honour him. 
So when we are relying upon our experience, when we come to church and then we go home and we're like, oh man, the Spirit of God was so there. And then we continue on in a sinful behaviour. What we're doing is we're replacing the true worship of God in spirit and in truth with a feeling that has masked itself in our hearts as the presence of God. We're relying on that experience. And this becomes a false worship because it's not worshipping God in spirit and in truth. Turn over to 1 Corinthians. We all know 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and, uh, you know, if you've been to more than one wedding, you've heard it more than once uh, because everyone seems to use this passage in a wedding. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clinging cymbal. Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbour. If I have not love, I've become a clanging symbol. If you go back to chapter 12, you see this wonderful description, probably the most perfect description of how gifts really work within the church and that you and I are gifted just like a body has certain functions within it, you and I are gifted to bless each other with, with ministry to each other from the Lord. And as Paul comes to the end of chapter 12, he says these words, Now you are the body of Christ and members individually and God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, prophets, teachers, workers of miracles, uh, gifts of healing, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues, are all apostles, all prophets, all teachers, all workers of miracles. It's the same question to all these questions, which is no. Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? It's all no. The answer is all no, all the way through there. But earnestly desire the best gifts and yet I show you a more excellent way. Remember that chapter division and verses are not in the original letter. And yet I show you a more excellent way. Here he goes, he's going to show them. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I've become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. You see, love is the thing at the very centre of the motivation of our worship. God is at the centre. God is love. And we have seen God in his love declaring judgement upon a nation and surrounding nations. And so it's the worship of God. That worship of God has to be founded upon the basis of you and I walking in love for God and love for each other. And it must start within the church. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove the mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. You see, Paul is saying it's not what you do, it's the motivation that works in the background that is the important thing. And that should, de- should determine what we do in, in so many ways, but it has to be that motivation working in the background. Religious piety, 
knowledge, all these things and nothing. So what is love? Well, start with studying Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. Start with working through them because when Jesus is asked about the greatest commandment, that's where he goes. He says, love God with all your heart, love your neighbour as yourself. He went there into the Old Testament. So we've said in the beginning that God has spoken to us in times past through the prophets. Then the Word became flesh. What does that mean, the Word became flesh? Because Jesus made appearances in the Old Testament in a bodily form. He wasn't just existing in the ether as the Word of God. No, it means that which was declared about Jesus became flesh and lived among us. The truth of the prophecies took on a human form and lived here among us. Fully God and fully man. And then the Lord, he declares that he hates their sacrifices, their gatherings, their offerings, their singing, their music. Why? Because they were not living justly. They were not living righteously. Why? Because they had erred in false worship and in showing partiality. These two things are a contradiction to those two basic commandments to love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love your neighbour as yourself. So I want to leave you with that, that that would be the, the pursuit of your life. Lord, help me to love you more and help me to show your love to everybody around me. Everything else, everything else will fall into place with that. Everything. You know that person that you had an argument with at church and, and you know, you, you're righteous in the argument for sure because you're probably never wrong, not like me, you know. But you've had this argument and nobody's backing down and so now there's tension. Where's that coming from? It's coming from a violation of that second commandment, that existing tension. Someone is not loving their neighbour. Maybe it's coming from a violation of the first one that they're not honouring the truth. So a division is formed. It all comes back to these. It's so simple. When we boil the Christian life down, it is, it is much simpler than we give heed to. Amen? Hallelujah. Now, Father, we praise you and we thank you, Lord. You've shown us such amazing love and we've sung of it this morning, Lord, and probably no song highlights it more in my mind, Lord, than to hear those words before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. I thank you that the blood of Christ is a, a constant pleading. The satisfaction of my sin. Or to satisfy your justice and, and to pay the debt of my sin. I'm so corrupt and so wretched and yet through Christ you would love 
and demonstrate your love to save me. So help me, Father, that I would, in honouring the commands that Jesus reiterated, that I would love you with all my heart and love my neighbour as myself and, Lord, to walk also in that new commandment that Jesus gave to the church. By this shall all men know that you are my commandments, uh, my, my disciples, if you have love one for another. Help us to walk in this, Lord. Help us to really search our hearts, Father, that you might show us that where the inauthenticity of our worship might lie, Lord God, so that we can root these things out and walk in a closer relationship with you. In Christ's mighty name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord.